Thanks for joining us on the New Beginnings Podcast, where our goal is to help people connect with Christ. We hope you enjoy listening. about Jesus last week as the Lamb of God. Before that, we talked about Jesus as the King. Uh, we, we, we originated with the idea that Jesus is, is not alone, though. He is connected. He is a part of this very dynamic three-in-one and one-in-three God. And it's just a cool series. And so uh, if you haven't been able to watch them, go, go back and catch up online. But today we will talk about the idea that Jesus sometimes is hidden. So for all of you note takers, uh, just so that I don't lose you, I'm going to get it out of the way because I'll forget by the time I get to the end of the sermon that Jesus sometimes is hidden, that sometimes in life, it doesn't seem like you can see Jesus. Put it this way. We know this. We know there are certain people in life that don't want to see Jesus, that, that resist the idea of seeing Jesus. There's a famous story um, about Nikita Khrushchev, who was the leader of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And, um, they had sent in the, in the race to the to the moon in the race to outer space. He had sent astronauts up, and and when they returned, he was giving part of the address in the interview. And he was a very anti God person as a communist leader. He didn't want God to be involved in his life or his nation's life. And he said, "Well, the astronauts they went into outer space, but they did not see God." To which C.S. Lewis responded and said, "How ridiculous! That's the equivalent of interviewing Hamlet." And Hamlet having said, I did not see Shakespeare. The idea that you could somehow go into space and see God would mean that your God is small and somehow lives in the confines of the universe that he created. He said, you have no idea. C.S. Lewis was brilliant. He had, no, he had no idea what you're talking about over there, is what Lewis was in essence saying. Some people can see God everywhere, though. You ever notice that? You get, you get that person that walks with God and they seem to see God in all things at all times and, and they feel like they walk with God or are connected with God and they, they have sometimes the most painful experiences and yet they can see God at work in their pain or they see God at work in sometimes the simple things or the extravagant things or whatever. And, you, and most of us are somewhere in the middle because we recognize, well, man, there are times where I really sense God and see God and feel and experience God. And there's sometimes where I feel like God is completely distant. And the story we read today, it is simply a story of people who are struggling to see God. It's an incredible story. Dive in. It's Luke chapter 24. Again, after the resurrection, it says, that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Again, this is three days after the crucifixion. This was the talk of the town. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So again, Luke is letting you in on the story, right? Like he, he's not treating you like you're one of the characters who doesn't know what's going on. And at the end, you'll be surprised. He's letting you in really early like an outsider. So you don't have the point of view of Jesus. You don't even have the point of view of, of the two disciples. You have the point of view of the outsider looking in on the story, actually knowing what's going on. And so Jesus... They don't know it's Jesus, but Jesus asks them the question, hey, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Clearly, Jesus is just poking around. Hey, what are you, what's shaking? What are, you guys, what are you guys talking about? So they stood still. Their faces downcast. So th- this statement is so huge because you have to remember, if you were walking along, for you to stop in your tracks, 
something heavy, something serious would have had to have been said. And so they stood still. And then their faces were downcast. That sets the tone for the type of mood these people are in. You have to remember these were two of the disciples of Jesus. And so for this man, this random person to ask them, hey, what are you guys talking about? What's happening? What's shaking? They stopped in their tracks, but then their faces are downcast. These people are in shock. These people are, they're distressed. So one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? The second question that Jesus, what things? Well, uh, duh, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that there was the, that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So again, Luke is lacing into this idea of there's two disciples who don't see Jesus, even though he is right there in front of them. And then, of course, he comes back later and says the disciples did not see him. Now, the disciples did not see him when they went to the tomb because he physically was not there. But the reason why these disciples could not see Jesus is a little bit deeper than that. There's something going on. It says that they were kept from seeing Jesus. And I don't know that that means that Jesus purposely like, you know, did a Jedi mind trick and blinded their eyes from seeing. I, I don't know if that was the case or not. I believe it plays a role in it. But again, the fact is, is that these people were surrounded by greatness and they didn't even know it. There's a story. This took place back in 2007. The Washington Post did an experiment where they took one of the greatest violinists in all the world guy named Joshua Bell. And they gave him a Stradivarius violin, the most expensive violin in the whole world. So expensive that this violin in particular had been stolen twice already. It's expensive and famous, this violinist. And then they had him playing some Johann Sebastian Bach. But they set him up in the most plain clothes, wearing a baseball hat at a Washington, D.C. subway station. And they said, we're going to take the greatest musician playing the greatest instrument, playing some of the greatest music that has ever been written. And we just want to see if anybody will notice. And guess what? And people in all of their hustle and bustle and busyness kept walking by. And so literally the first 63 people walked by and no one even lifted their head. This ends up going on for 15 minutes. Over a thousand people pass him by and only one or two people even pause to take notice or stop to listen at all. 27 people chipped in because, you know, he he just set up like he was a, a street performer. 27 people chipped in and threw money and he collected in 15 minutes of playing Bach, he collected $32. Now, to give you some perspective, he makes about $1,000 a minute playing for the world. And the point of the article was this, that sometimes you can be surrounded by greatness and not even know it. The headline of the article literally was this, he is the one who is real, they are ghost. 
So you can be surrounded by greatness. You can be surrounded by God. You can be surrounded by his presence and his glory. It can be all around you and you not even know it. Now, these people missed it for the same reason sometimes we miss God. Sometimes you're just too busy. The reason why you don't see God is because you are so preoccupied with you or the things around you or the stress around you or the lack of time. This is why the psalmist, I think, said, be still and know that I am God. Because without any level of stillness, sometimes you miss it. This is why Jacob, literally, it took him having a dream and seeing angels going up and down on a ladder. And he woke up and he goes, I've been in the presence of God and I didn't even know it. What he, what he was aware of was is that there was something going on around him that he couldn't see with his natural eye unless he really paused and tapped into something beyond himself. And you and I are the same way. You and I are sometimes like these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. For them, though, it wasn't just that they were busy on a road trying to get somewhere. Sometimes we miss God because we think, we think God sometimes is uninterested in us. Because if you've prayed prayers and those prayers have gone unanswered for any length of time or any length of prayers, sometimes you think, well, God just doesn't care. God's uninterested. God's absent from my situation. And you feel like because he's not answering your prayers that God must not be around. Sometimes it is, in the case of these disciples, it is pure hopelessness. Hopelessness, I think, is what blinds you from the presence of God. Hope, so you got to think, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope in some ways, the way these disciples experienced it, sets you up for such high expectations, but see, you have it's such a risk to be hopeful. Because if, if, if you go to college, but then don't get the, the job of your dreams, if you, if you marry that person, but then it doesn't turn out the way that you thought it would, if you make that move, do that thing, take that risk, take that adventure, and it doesn't work out. See, that's why Solomon said hope deferred sickens the heart. Funny enough, you can prove this. In, in, psychologists have studied people, and what they recognize is, is that hope is a real thing. It's hard to quantify, but it's real because they literally took elderly people and they noticed that their health would deteriorate if they had no hope. But people that had hope could outlive others and, and actually overcome sickness and illness and disease and, and, and recovery and rehab. They found the same thing to be true of college students, though, that how they would perform on an exam many times was related to their level of hope. But see, again, hope is risky because what they said was is that they were just downcast because they had hoped. They hoped that Jesus was actually going to be the Messiah that would redeem Israel and overcome Rome. And again, what they didn't know is what Jesus was really up to. But again, hope is a beautiful thing. See, sometimes you, you've got to risk it all. See, that's, as a matter of fact, what you would really say is, is that hope is the prerequisite of faith. Because the Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. Meaning like if you never generate any hope, you actually can't do anything in faith. But then you risk. So then you have to ask yourself, what is my hope really in? Is my hope in the thing that I want? Or is my hope in the God who provides all things? So this is how the story plays out. So Jesus, hearing them in their downcast depression, talking about what had happened, he says to them, verse 25, how foolish are you? Now, I don't know about you, but this is just basic social etiquette here. Usually when you meet somebody for the very first time, you typically don't want to insult them by calling them foolish. But when you're Jesus, you do what you want. 
how foolish you are and how slow to believe that all that the prophets had spoken. And did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. If I, could, if I had a flux capacitor and could go back in time and I could just pick a few spots, this would be one of them. Because this has got to be the greatest sermon never recorded. Like, can you imagine Jesus walking you through the text? Walking you, th- let me tell you, well, remember when Moses, well, remember when Isaiah, remember when, Isaiah, remember, do you remember? And Can you imagine? See, now what Jesus does here is fascinating too, because if you notice what he does is, is he clarifies the scriptures to start rebuilding their hope. Do you notice that? He's like, well, actually, this is the way it was always supposed to be. Actually, this is the way that it was always. This is what the prophets were at. And I think he begins to rebuild their hope, knowing that if they don't remove the hopelessness, they'll never see him anyway. And so Jesus just kind of continues down this line of, of, of just toying with them, messing with them, setting them up. But this is what it says. It says that as they approached the village, you got to remember, what was it? Seven miles at a three mile an hour pace walking is about two and a half hours. Now, I don't know when Jesus started this journey, but it sounds pretty, pretty early in. Jesus might have just given them an hour and a half or so of expository Bible teaching. And they're so fascinated by it. This is what happens. This is as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. Okay, observation here. Sometimes Jesus is going to keep going until you ask him to stop and come in. See, the disciples do this. There's a story where they're on the boat, and it says that a huge storm comes up, and then they see Jesus walking on the water, and it says very clearly, and he would have passed them by. Meaning Jesus is doing what Jesus is going to do with or without you. Like God's going to do, this is what we call the sovereign will of God. That God's going to do what God's going to do. And he's invited you to be a part of it. But listen, God's going to do what God's going to do. And he might just keep going. But watch, this is what they do. It says that Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly. My, my point with this is that Jesus does not force himself into their lives. Jesus does not force himself into their home. Jesus does not force his way into anything. You ever felt, you ever noticed that? Jesus doesn't just, the Bible says he knocks on the door. He doesn't beat it down. He's not coming in like 5-0 with a donkey kick and like guns blazing. Submit now. Follow me. Just an observation. You have to be actively inviting Jesus into your life. This is what we may even refer to as spiritual disciplines. Like the spiritual disciplines of saying, hey, these are the things that I do to be actively urging, strongly urging, strongly inviting Jesus into my life. I find a quiet place and I sit still and I pray and I ask and then I listen and I read the scriptures and I let them breathe back on me as God wants breathe on them. And I have these, these moments of worship and, I have, and I, I'm in a church. I'm in the presence of God with the presence of people listening to the spoken word of God. And these are the disciplines that I have that are constantly urging Jesus, saying, Jesus, I need you and I want you actively in my life. They would have never seen Jesus had they not done this. 
he would have still been a stranger with an incredible Bible teaching. So now he does something really, really fascinating. Are you ready? So it says, they say to Jesus, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he, he went in to stay with them. Watch this. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. And then he began to give it to them. So he took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And then he gave it. Everybody say, everybody say blessed. Everybody say broken. Given. This is a reconnect to previous stories. Jesus does this a lot where he has a moment with you, but it's a reconnect to a previous moment. He does this, but watch, let's read the rest of the story and we'll come back to it. So it says then, everybody say then, meaning connected to, then their eyes were open and they recognized him. But poof, <laughs> freaky Jesus moment, poof, he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? What Jesus does is a reconnect. See, there was two other instances where Jesus had taken the bread and he, well, he blessed it and then he broke it and then he gave it. The first time they really see this is in the the feeding of the 5,000. This incredible miracle where he's talking to literally thousands and thousands of people. But uh, there's no Costco. There's no Safeway. Nobody brought a Lunchable. There was one kid who had some fish and loaves of bread. And Jesus, it says, took it and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it. And this is where you see Jesus in. and, And now let me ask you this. If you were there on that day and you saw Jesus feed thousands and thousands of people, you would have said, yes, I saw a miracle and I saw God at work because no man can pull that off. That, you know, David Copperfield can't make that happen. He can, there's no illusions for that one. They, there's either food or they're not food. We're either hungry and fasting or, or no, we got a happy meal that day. And so what you see is, is that you, and you know this to be true, you can see God in the miracles. If you ever have a miracle story, you can see God in the miracles. Now, again, miracles aren't all the time. This is something you need to embrace. Like if miracles happened all the time, we wouldn't call them miracles. We call those Thursday afternoons, right? That just happens all the time. They're, they're special occasions. They're unique. They're very, they're very scattered and spread out. They seem to be random to you, but I would assume that they're very organized to God. There's a story of, of a couple in our church who have a, a recent miracle story. They got into a car accident. They were out um, near Lake Dalval, and on the countryside, the tire lost its way, and they literally flipped, I don't know, at least a dozen times down a hill. And it was dark because they were out there to watch the sunset over the hills. And when your car flips a dozen times, you lose orientation, and you lose your cell phone. And... When they tell you the story, one of them is really unable to move. The other one is able to basically crawl. And it's dark out by the time they come to, and they literally are crawling looking for a phone, hoping they can use their phone to call somebody and somehow get help there. And as she tells the story, she goes, I was crawling around. All of our stuff had been thrown out of the vehicle. And she goes, I knew I had to find my phone, and I'm crawling looking for it. And for no reason at all, the light on the phone just turns on. Nobody calls, nobody texts, nobody nothings. It just comes on. And because of that, I was able to find my phone and call for help. And she goes, that is when I knew that God was at work. 
around me. It is, it's easy to see that, right? It's easy to say, God is at work. It's easy to see God in the miracles. But again, you don't live off miracles. Those are not daily, weekly, or even annual occurrences. Now, the next time that Jesus has this moment where he takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it is on the night we call the Last Supper. Literally, the night that he's betrayed, the night before he's taken and arrested, eventually crucified, it says that he goes to a place called an upper room and he, he invites the disciples in and says, hey, I'm going to give you something new. This is something, a, a, a new ritual, if you will, that I want you to keep for all times. And what I want you to do is, is I want you to take wine and to take bread and to every time you take the bread and you take the wine and you remember me, this is what we call the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the Eucharist, this is what we call communion and he said this is the new covenant and so he literally has this moment where he says that he begin he takes the bread he blesses it and then he breaks it and then he gives it which is interesting because in many ways the process of blessing and breaking and giving is the process that any real true christ follower should experience because when you come to christ normally you have a sensation of like grace And then because of that, you're overwhelmed with gratitude, which creates some level of excitement and joy. And it's almost like a high. And when you first experience God, you get that initial like, I'm just so blessed. This is awesome. But that does not last forever. Because eventually the process next should take you into a level of, of breaking. Like if you walk with Jesus long enough, What you recognize is that there's something in my heart, there's something in my soul, there's some thoughts that I have, maybe even some habits or even some relationships that I have that will prevent me from moving forward in life and experiencing God's best. So God's going to put me in some places and in some experiences to break me. And nobody ever thinks the breaking is fun. See, again, sometimes it is hard to see Jesus. When you're in the breaking process, it is typically not the time that you really, really see Jesus. This is why in the moment of your pain, you typically don't see him. But if you've ever walked with God and you get to the other end of your experience, you can always see God in your past. You ever notice that? I didn't feel it when it was going on. But now that I look back, I can see that God was orchestrating little things that at the time I thought were painful, but sometimes produced the greatest thing in my life. And I think God does this so that you, 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 the person, can actually one day be given. Because see, you were designed for purpose and meaning. And God wants to use you to do something incredible in the earth. But sometimes you can't fully realize that until you felt the blessing and grace and wonder of God, but also felt the, the breaking of certain things off of your life. And when you experience those things, God's like, well, now well, you're ready. Now I can use you. Now I can do, I can work through you and you won't become arrogant and conceited. I can do things through you and you'll, you'll know how to handle that situation. I, listen, this is what, this is why religious people go so awry. It's because what they do is they experience the blessing of God and they learn a few things or, or two and then they become arrogant and prideful. Why? Well, they never really experienced the breaking because breaking produces humility. That's what allows you to truly be given. That way you can love people and there's no judgment between you. That's when you love people freely. When you operate out of the tree of life and not constantly operating out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because of all you know and what's right and what's wrong. What's this, and, and all that stands between you and other people. But see, again, when, when you walk in humility, you realize that, okay, I can love them 
the way God loves them. The way Jesus said, this new command I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And so anyway, there's this process of breaking, but it's found in, so, so the first one is found in the miracle. Everybody say miracle. The second one is found in the ritual. Everybody say the ritual. But the ritual, you don't do rituals every day. There's two rituals that Jesus gave us. There are communion and baptism. And every time that we take communion or we experience baptism, we actually celebrate his death in communion. That's why he said that his body was broken and his blood was shed. But we experience his resurrection in baptism. And so these are the two rituals that God has given us. And if you will soak in the ritual, you'll see Jesus. There's just something powerful about it. If you've been baptized, you're like, no, 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 I get it now. I'm springing forth into new life as Jesus was raised from the dead. Now I am raised to new life as well. When you experience communion and you realize that he suffered and he died for my sake and for my behalf, I can see Jesus in the ritual, but you don't live on rituals. You don't do that daily. What these disciples show you is, is that again, if we put it like this, you would say, That again, we see Jesus in miracles, we see Jesus in rituals, but the greatest challenge is to see Jesus in the simple. Because these guys weren't taking communion. And there weren't thousands of people that were going to get fed. It was two people and some bread. And it said that he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it. And all of a sudden, ding, 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 ding. I've been here before. I've seen this before. I've seen Jesus. Ding, 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 ding. And their eyes were open. See, the greatest challenge in life, listen, we can all see Jesus in miracles. I mean, that's incredible. It's overwhelming. It's awesome. We can even see Jesus in the ritual as we truly soak them in and dive into them. But the greatest challenge is to see Jesus on like a Thursday afternoon. Like Monday lunch, do you see Jesus? Like Friday night, I want you to see Jesus. See, sometimes we, we, see, the temptation is to only seek God when you need a miracle. That's a real bad temptation. Or the other temptation is to compartmentalize God down to a Sunday morning and down to a ritual. And that's where you see, really, religion at its worst, maybe, is when I confine God to certain specific things that if I do this, I'll be made right with God. And we've missed the point because we reduced God down to a ritual. We don't... The key is, is can you see God in all things? This is why the Apostle Paul said this, and this, there's several scriptures that I could give you, but in Romans eleven thirty six it says, for from him and through him and for him are all things. See, can you see God everywhere? Because it's all his. And God is at work. This is why he says later, for in all things, God is at work with them that love him and are called according to his purpose. See, when you're really walking with God, you begin to see God in all things. You see God in the smallest of conversations, the the slightest of interactions, the big grand moments, but even the mundane, the boring, the average, and the simple moments because, well, it's all his. And God is always at work. Now, last observation, and then we're going to do something special. And And it's the observation of... What are they doing when they actually see Jesus? They're sharing a meal. It's as simple as that. And every encounter that Jesus has after his resurrection involves food. You need to think about that. Now, I think it's for two reasons. I think number one is because Jesus had to prove to people that he was not a ghost. And ghosts don't eat food. And neither do zombies. So... So I'm not a zombie. I'm not a ghost. Give me some food. But the other thing that you recognize is is there's something incredibly powerful about food. 
Have you ever noticed that the greatest moments in your life involve food? That's why there's a a wedding rehearsal and then there's a a dinner after or there's even after a funeral you go and eat food. I mean, there's just at your at your 50th birthday party. There was food at your first birthday party. There's food. You get cake and you stick that little baby in front of the cake and you just see what he does and he plays with it and he doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know what to do. I'm just telling you, there's food. The greatest moments in life, there's food. And what you realize is, is that food has this huge element of communion or what we would maybe call fellowship or connection. And what you realize is that all really God wants to do is be invited into the most simple mundane thing that you do, which is eat, which you do three times a day, seven days a week. God wants to be actively involved in the most simple and the mundane and the greatest and the grandest. He wants to be in the miracle, the ritual, and your Thursday afternoon lunch. He wants to be everywhere. John in the book of Revelation said this when he was quoting Jesus, talking to these different people, these different churches. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone would open the door and let me in, I would come in and share a meal with him. The result of the good news of the gospel of Jesus is at the end of all things, God has communion with you. So again, we can see Jesus in the miracles. We can see Jesus in the rituals if we're careful and we look close enough. But God wants to be seen in all things, at all times and in all places and commune and have incredible fellowship with you. Would you do me a favor and bow your heads and close your eyes? I think we need to just say a simple prayer this morning and the prayer needs to be, God, would you help me see you? God, would would you help me to be always aware of your presence? Would you help me to commune with you in the most simple and ordinary and mundane aspects of my life? May I never compartmentalize you and stick you into a Sunday morning experience and then leave you there. May I not be tempted to only seek you when I need a miracle. God, help me to walk in such a way God, that as you walk with me, I see you for who you really are. Lord, that is our prayer today. In Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. Will you give the Lord a big hand clap this morning? Thanks again for listening to the New Beginnings Podcast. For more information on New Beginnings Church, please visit us online at nbchurch.tv.